welcome to the Big Five podcast. I am your host, Dr. Daniel Rippon, and on this episode, my guest is Dr. Mark Moss. Mark is the head of the psychology department at Northumbria University in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. And on this episode, Mark reflects on his early career of working in industry in the discipline of chemistry and what inspired him to engage in a career change and retrain to become a psychologist. Mark also discusses his philosophy on teaching and research in university settings, whilst also providing insights on some of his key achievements and challenges that he has experienced over the course of his career. So without further ado, here is Dr. Mark Moss. Okay, so Dr. Mark Moss, welcome to the Big Five podcast. Thanks very much. Good afternoon. Um, I believe this is the, the second time that you've been on this podcast. It is. It is the second time. The first time was specifically talking about my research, and I think that you want to talk about other things today. Yes. Um, so the plan today is to really just to talk through uh, the development of the psychology department here uh, at Northumbria University since 1992 when. Uh, Northumbria uh, achieved North um, University status. Um, but to begin with, before you pursued a career in psychology, am I correct in thinking that your background was in chemistry? It was. I did applied chemistry when I left school um, yeah. and then worked in manufacturing industry for 10 years in the tanning industry uh, before deciding I didn't like doing that and uh, left and had a very early midlife crisis and came to study psychology at the tender age of 30, I think I was, when I came up here, in, and that was in 1992. Okay. So what inspired you to pursue a career in psychology after working in the tanning industry? Well, I suppose one of the things was it's about as far away from it as you could possibly get in a different direction. I decided that I wanted to return to university and do something different. And it was a question of looking around a lot of different universities and looking through an awful lot of prospectuses to see what really caught my eye. And uh, I suppose that's how I came to fall on psychology. I had perhaps a little, I suppose, personal inspiration, as so many people often do as well, and I had an elder brother who was a heroin addict alcoholic. Uh, and clearly that kind of behavior pattern is the sort of thing that uh, makes you think about what's going through people. You know, what is it that makes people do those sorts of things? So I had that sort of, I suppose, personal uh, motivation. And perhaps like so many students who join us as undergraduates, I came here with the uh, intention of going into clinical psychology to uh, try and work with uh, people who had some kind of substance addictions or similar. Right, okay. So d did you arrive at Northumbria University in 1992? Yeah, I was a mature student arriving in 1992. Okay. Um, so what was the psychology department like back then in 1992? Well, one of the most noticeable differences is its size. Okay. <laughs> so back then, there were probably across the three years of the undergraduate degree, I would think around about 100 students, perhaps a few more across the three years. In my year, which was the, the program was starting to grow, and so in my year, uh, there were about um, 45, I think, maybe 50 students in my year, in the first year. And that was bigger than the second year, which was bigger than the third year. So, yeah, maybe maximum, I should think, maximum probably 110 students in the entire degree. Right. What that meant was that it felt like, to some extent, a single community. Mm. There weren't many academics, of course, because you don't need many academics to service a, a department with small numbers like that. Mm -hmm. It meant that you could get to know the people in your cohort uh, pretty well. It also meant that you could get to know the members of staff 
pretty well because they would soon pick up on your names because of the small numbers uh, in the groups. We used to have seminar groups in staff offices. There would be five or six students and a member of staff in a staff office having a discussion about a research paper or something like that. Mm. You know, and we could do that because of the number of students. You didn't have to, you know, they'd probably run about six seminar groups or something like that. Uh, we didn't have a foundation year. They didn't exist. We didn't have a major minor psych with criminology or anything like that. There was just the psychology yeah. uh, undergraduate program. So mm. it was a very, very different uh, place. And it was interesting because it was on the cusp of a change in direction and ethos because the previous year uh i think it was the previous year the university had just appointed a new head of department of psychology uh someone who is still with us in the department professor pam bricks mm. and she was instrumental in changing the direction and focus of the department and perhaps to some extent uh, the university over time okay so in which and what way did professor pam briggs change the direction of the department well the the, the single the single word really is research okay so prior to 1992 the university was newcastle polytechnic Mm -hmm. um polytechnics were excellent teaching organizations but they didn't have any significant uh focus on research at all there would have been some research that was done but a very very low level and by no means all members of academic staff were uh, required or expected or interested in directly contributing to new research. Uh, Pam came from a strongly research-intensive university, and one of the first things that she set about doing was developing research in the Department of Psychology at Northumbria, so that within a, a matter of a few years, we had uh, the department has started punching above its weight in terms of the research activity that was going on. The Uni Northumbria University had just been formed and the department was sort of at the forefront in many respects of saying, we are now a university, we're going to change the activity that we do. Mm. Um, and so we started doing an awful lot more research and started appointing new members of staff who had much stronger research agendas yeah so was that change of focus and becoming a more research intensive department is that what inspired you to transfer your career ambitions from um, focusing attention on the field of clinical psychology onto becoming a research psychologist uh that's a very interesting question and i'd say that i perhaps uh changed directions a few times for various different reasons so first of all yes i was interested in clinical psychology as i was going through the undergraduate degree i uh, started to uh, be mentored to some extent by uh one of the new members of staff who had joined us uh, professor andrew scully um and we started talking about research that he was doing and uh, then about what I might do for my final year project. Uh, and so we got involved in talking about those sorts of things and uh, he supervised my final year project, uh, which uh, we managed to get published. And so perhaps not surprisingly, that experience of that mentorship and that opportunity to actually do research that gets published. Mm. It, up until that point, as an undergraduate student, I honestly hadn't really thought about the opportunities of getting research published. Mm. We used it in our assignments and things like that, as, every, as all students do. But that sort of translation from this is the sort of stuff that you can get involved in 
yeah was just was just not there previously so that was quite a big step so that really got me interested in research without a shadow of a doubt and um andrew uh applied for some university funding for a phd studentship which they were to say they were to say they're limited now they were almost like hen's teeth right. uh, back then they were re it was really hard to get hold of uh, internal funding but he managed to get some internal funding which uh, allowed me to then uh, go on to do my phd uh, following graduation under his supervision mm. uh and Again, that was uh, a really interesting experience, being able to spend all your time focusing on developing and conducting research, writing up research papers, uh, going to conferences, uh, being quizzed by the great and good in the area and that sort of thing. It, it's, it's, it is quite, quite an experience. and It, it was uh, uh, really, really enjoyable, mm. though I must say, at the same time, I was introduced to something else that caught my attention as well. And that something else was teaching. I'd never done any teaching in my life previously. And when I was doing my PhD, as so many PhD students do, I was offered the opportunity to get involved in some teaching. And I absolutely loved it. Mm. Absolutely loved it. I thought it was just such a fantastic experience to be working with the students in uh, on their practical labs or uh, research methods and statistics. And I, I taught just about on all various different aspects of the program during my PhD. I was always happy to get involved in uh, various different things, but I absolutely thoroughly enjoyed it. And so when I finished my PhD. Uh, there was a fixed term contract available in the department uh, due to uh, to cover a couple of sabbaticals, mm. uh, which I applied for and uh, was fortunate enough to get. And that led me then into the sort of career academic uh, that you see before you now. Mm. So what did you investigate in your PhD programme? Of research, uh, so I looked at the effect of breathing pure oxygen on uh, cognition and mood in healthy adults. Okay. Uh, so uh, it was, yeah, it was a, a novel idea that just came out of some conversations that Andrew and I had at that time, and mm. it was, yeah, it was an interesting uh, uh, series of, of studies, a number of which are published and and available on the web. Yeah. How did you find the process of balancing, focusing on your PhD and also teaching students alongside your PhD programme of research? Uh, it's interesting because to some extent it's a challenge, but perhaps it's looking back with rose-coloured spectacles, so it seemed an awful lot easier than balancing all the demands that one gets in an academic career nowadays. Mm -hmm. Um, and again, I think with the smaller, smaller cohorts that we had back then when I was involved, but, uh, yeah, you've, you've got to just, uh, ensure that you're able to do both. It's just a time management thing, really. I suppose I found, didn't find it too difficult based on the fact that, you know, I'd come from 10 years in industry where obviously you have to develop those sorts of skills anyway i do remember when i first uh, came back as a mature student and i thought this is absolutely fantastic i've got what, what eight hours contact a week or something like that which means i can spend all the rest of the time uh, every day writing up notes doing some reading in the library and that sort of thing and still have every evening and weekend free to do whatever I like mm. because there's more than enough time in the week to do everything during what I'd seen as working hours when I was working. You know, you get up in the morning, you work all day. And then you, yeah, yeah, yeah. And at the weekend, you finish. So it was yeah. like, it was like that. That's really, really easy and straightforward to fit things in. Yeah. Uh, and I think that just carried on in the PhD. So you get some more stuff to do, but you just organize yourself. And it's perhaps just experience that gives you that. When you can reflect back and think, God, it was bloody hard work when I was working every day, uh, 
Yes. Yeah. This, yeah. Is, this is I can fit all this in a lot easier. Yeah. So, what was your job title when you were covering sabbaticals? I was uh, a lecturer. 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 Okay. So I was a sort of entry level lecturer. Yeah. Yeah. And then, did you eventually get a, a permanent contract? Yes, I had. Uh, Fixed term contract, then another fixed term contract, and towards the end of the second fixed term contract, uh, I was made uh, permanent. Right. Yes. Okay. So I think I did something like two or three years on fixed term contracts before being made permanent. So when you arrived at Northumbria University in 1992, did you ever foresee yourself being head of the psychology department? Of Northumbria University. No, no, absolutely not. It, it, and at no point, it's interesting, at no point have I really considered that. Uh, so, as I say, you know, I first of all came, it was like clinical psychology I was interested in, then I got interested in research, then I got interested in teaching. Um, uh, I became a lecturer, and I thought, this, this, is, um, this is really, really enjoyable. I, I was thoroughly thoroughly enjoying uh, uh, being a new lecturer uh, in the department and got increasingly involved in um, aspects of design and management of programs and admin and these sorts of things, uh, talking to uh, uh, senior colleagues, program directors and, and program leaders and such like about how things fit together. I got interested in, in in that side, and I suppose that's that sort of started the ball rolling. I, I was asked to take on the program leadership of the uh, undergraduate psychology program, um, which which I did, and really really uh, enjoyed it. Um, I did that for three years before uh, before passing it on, but that gave me. Uh, considerable insights into the way that things are run, the way that things are done, and um, the problems of putting together a, a, a degree and the staffing of it and who does what and when and timetabling and all these sorts of mm. things that you don't sort of realise as, as a starting academic where you've just got your own module or whatever to think about and you're thinking about your module and your delivery and your assessments and that sort of thing. And, of course, the programme's got all of these things in it. So it yeah. started me off in that. and. I applied for uh, a couple of uh, promotions uh, back then. They were slightly different. It was really quite a different uh, promotion system to what we have now. There were a number of sort of management roles within the department that um, you applied for based on experience and ideas and such like, but they, they weren't, uh, they weren't uh, sort of, research related so they weren't like associate professor professor as such they were mm. what was called principal lecturer and we had a number of these across the uh, uh department that were sort of used for managing the uh, different programs and such like so i applied for a couple of those that uh, uh came up and i finally got one that was uh, uh a position across the department of psychology was then twinned with uh, Department of Sports Sciences in a school of psychology and sports sciences. Mm. And I got a position of principal lecturer with the responsibility for student affairs uh, across the school, um, of which I uh, I held that position for, I'm trying to think, for four years or something, or, or something like that, uh, until uh, one day when. Uh, uh, Pam Briggs, who had then moved up to be Dean of School, uh, popped into my office to ask me if I would be interested in going for the role of Head of Department. And it hadn't really occurred to me until that mm. point. It wasn't something that was on my to-do list. <laughs> uh, but uh, when you get asked that sort of question, it makes you think, and it's sort of like, well, if you... okay, so that's what I did, and, uh, and that's how I originally became head of department yeah i've since then been interviewed for the uh position three times i think now right so i've three times secured myself the permanent position of head of department which says a lot of permanency in academia i think mm, yeah i mean you've mentioned some of the various responsibilities that you have as head of department 
do you still find that you've got the the headspace and the time to engage in your with your research and also the the teaching that you mentioned that you you really enjoy mm. delivering uh i do it all gets a bit uh challenging to be perfectly honest but it there are certain things that are facilitators of this sort of thing as you progress so research a lot of the research that i uh, do now is uh, collaborative research with students based on their undergraduate projects or postgraduate thesis research. Mm. So rather than thinking, well, I've got all this to do mm. myself, uh, I'm able to uh, do this work with with them, to mentor them, to guide them, to do the research, and then to work with them and, and on the papers that come out of it. So that's, mm. that's one thing um, that has been very beneficial uh, to me. The other thing is that I have been fortunate enough to gain some funding for some research projects from research councils and from industry, uh, which is helpful because then it means you can employ research assistants to do uh, a lot of the work and you, again, just guide them, manage them, mentor them to make sure the projects uh, come to fruition. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you get that opportunity to be able to do those sorts of things. It's just in a slightly different way. You're not sort of on your own doing your bit of research. You're uh, mentoring others. Mm. Um, in terms of teaching, it's often the case that uh, academics tend to reduce their teaching activity um, as they progress up the uh, up the organization up the chain uh it's not something that i've ever done because i do like teaching so it, it it is something that i've been able to maintain simply because i want to maintain it mm. um it would have been something that i could have uh, considerably reduced no doubt if i hadn't wanted to maintain it mm. recently a lot of that teaching that i do has been focused around the distance learning master's conversion program that we run and i enjoy teaching on the distance learning it's very different to teaching on campus of course because mm. you're not face to face with students the closest you get is you know monitor to monitor on teams or uh, yeah. or, or something like that but uh, uh for all that uh it can still be a very rewarding uh a re very rewarding experience i mean that must be quite a big change that you've seen over the years in terms of teaching delivery from being in I don't know, a professor's office where there's a seminar of six people to then um, delivering teaching on a remote basis. So how do you find that process of teaching students remotely in comparison to when you're teaching in person in lecture halls and seminars? It, it's, uh, it's strikingly similar to teaching in a very large lecture theatre because although you're face to face in a very large lecture theater it's not personal anymore because it's such a large audience you might teach there every week and ve rarely see perhaps the same students because they might sit in different places and that sort of thing it's a bit like a, a performance almost to a to a screen i think when you're doing those really large lectures mm. and uh when you do the uh the distance learning lectures um you I'm, or i find that i think what i do is i perform perhaps in the same way as i perform in a live lecture theater you know you, the audience is still there you know the audience is still there mm. um and so it makes it that perhaps a little bit more uh, real i i certainly don't find it as perhaps some people do, that it just seems artificial to be doing lecturing over a uh, over a Teams link or a Blackboard link or something like that. I don't find that anymore when there's an audience there. I find it strange if it's recording. If I'm just recording to no audience in my office and then posting a lecture, that's odd. Yeah. If I'm delivering a lecture electronically to a live audience, live, and it, the lecture might be recorded the fact that it is still live to a live audience even though you can't necessarily see them it, it's still real and yeah still, still thinks it think it brings out that level of performance yeah 
But there is a huge difference, of course, to both of those. And I mean, six students that you're talking to in a small group or 10 students or even 20 students that you're talking to in a relatively small group. And I do um, miss that level of interaction with students, with the small groups. Mm. Uh, when I used to deliver research methods workshops to 15 to 20 students, uh, I'd deliver a number of them uh, in a week. But, you know, they're in a small enough group that you get to uh, know who the students are, you get to talk to them and uh, build up some relationships and, and that sort of thing. So you really have to work at actually getting them engaged with what they're doing and such like. And that interaction, I think, is is really, really yeah, great fun. You, you mentioned earlier that you've got academics in the department who are passionate about their programmes of research. Um, why do you think it, it's beneficial for undergraduate students and postgraduate students who study here to be part of a research intensive department and um, being taught by academics who are overseeing their own programs of research? Um, I think the most important thing that uh, students will get out of this is cutting edge knowledge and the opportunity to use that level of knowledge and sort of perhaps even hands on experience if they're working with their. Uh, lecturers on certain projects to move forward their own career you need things that can make you as a graduate distinct um, from other graduates in the job when you're in the job market mm. or when you're in the postgraduate courses market doctoral training market whatever it might be and so having people active researchers within the department who are enthusiastic about their research means that you've got cutting edge research, cutting edge research that you will be getting taught about that you can get actively involved in either as a participant as a, a voluntary research assistant through the voluntary research assistance scheme um, or indeed as a, a paid research assistant upon graduation perhaps you know you, you can be learning from people who are at the forefront of uh, the area and that gives you very very insightful uh, key knowledge to take with you into the job market it can give you that head and shoulders approach above other people who perhaps don't have that experience mm. uh, with the research research is the way that psychology moves forward you know so what changes the discipline on a daily basis uh, let alone obviously on an annual and you know over many years the discipline of psychology is very very different yeah to what it was a hundred years ago mm. uh, we're a fairly new discipline but look at the changes that uh, have gone through the uh, uh, through the discipline and this is all a consequence of research and so for a student being able to be at that forefront working with someone who's coming up with something for the first time it's very very useful for them when they take themselves out into their career. Yeah, because um, you mentioned earlier your initial plan was to train to become a clinical psychologist. I know certainly we have students who express that desire to pursue um, careers in applied areas of psychology, such as clinical psychology or as a, as a forensic psychologist. Um, do you think it's the job of research psychologists or um, academics in the department to kind of illustrate some of the transferable skills that you get by being part of a research project as a research assistant, for example, and how those type of skills could be applied in other subdomains of psychology, such as, as clinical psychology or in forensic psychology. Um, it's an interesting question as to whether it's the responsibility of the leading researchers to highlight that and de deliver that knowledge or that awareness to the students or whether it is something that ideally the students should reflect on themselves mm. and develop that knowledge. That There's a certain point in an academic career um, where there's a sea change from 
being told what you should know to developing knowledge of what you are capable of and what you know and how to sort of pass that on um, to others and demonstrate how good you are. I just think, you know, when you start at primary school and you start being taught how to read and how to write and how to do sums, it's all about you've got to do it. You get to senior school and it, it, it becomes more relaxed in terms of these are the areas that you need to uh, uh, be knowing about and you need to read this chapter, this chapter, this chapter, mm. and it'll, and these are the things that will be on the exam and that sort of thing. You get to university and we try and make it even a bit loose and we'll give you some references to read, but go and have, have a look for yourself. Mm. We sort of say, you know, it's like here's some key references, but that's not all you should be doing. You've come to my lecture today. That is not all the knowledge you need to know about that topic. Yeah. Look, get a book out of the library or an e-book out of the library, whatever. Read the stuff, read the journal. But there has to be that reflective element yeah. of sitting back and just saying, oh, what have I learned in terms of skills and abilities? Not knowledge, but skills and abilities and such like. And, and it, yeah, so what, to what extent is it the researcher's job to highlight and develop those things? I I don't know, and I don't know the extent to which it is any academic's mm. job to do that. And I often reflect on the idea that that's the thing that really needs to be pushed to the students to reflect on, yeah, and and be able to articulate because they will then do it based around their own experiences and their own thoughts and their own ideas. Mm. Whereas if we tell them, then everybody will go away with the same idea or will regurgitate the same sorts of things as opposed to it being contextualised in their own experience, I think. So it's something we absolutely want students to do, but we want them to yeah. do it. Rather to, than us to tell them what they've done. Yeah, it's it's trying to encourage that reflective practice within the students. Mm. Because I, the only reason I'm asking this question is that I know we, we uh, hypothetically a student might say, "Well, I'm not interested in research skills or labs because I want to work therapeutically with people and deliver talk and therapies and be a clinical psychologist." Whereas the reality of the role of a clinical psychologist is sometimes they need to evaluate their services to see how effective it is in reducing symptoms of anxiety and depression. And this is where you can start to apply those research skills, because obviously we've got research assistants in the department who are working on clinical trials to see if, how effective a particular intervention is in illicit therapeutic change. I think sometimes students might miss those transferable skills that they're getting from being involved in a research active department and how it could be applied in other settings. And I'm not just talking subdomains of psychology, it could be business if you need to assess how effective you know, a marketing campaign was. You, you could use these kind of basic research skills that you could learn and develop by being in a research active department. I would absolutely agree that the the sorts of skills that uh, can be developed be fundamentally useful, no matter what um, career you do end up uh, going in. I always find it interesting when students say, well, I'm not interested in research methods and statistics. I want to be a clinical psych who delivers these therapies. And it's like, well, go and have a look at the information on Newcastle University's website about clinical psychology and the importance of research. Mm -hmm. You go and look at the BPS website and the importance of research in any of the field. You know, it's like it, it is always very, very high. So to suggest that actually the area of psychology you might be interested in is not uh, based on the uh, value of research, you would be missing the point, I think. You really are missing the point if that's the way that you think that... Uh, things are going but absolutely in all domains of work the, the general critical thinking analytical skills that we develop in psychology would be uh, valuable in all domains and i you know i often think about just the simple um 
transferable skills that students get from interacting with one another and doing things in groups that they often would say they don't really like doing. And I say, you know, but when you go to, to have your first job interview and the person says to you, um, could you uh, just uh, explain, could you just tell me an experience that you've had uh, where uh, perhaps there was some conflict in the group you were working with and what you did to resolve it? Mm. And I've said that to students previously, just in my office, I've said, you know, and they've looked at me and said, well, I've done anything on that. And I said, you worked in groups in first year, didn't you? You worked in groups in second year. You're telling me that every single session, nobody ever got upset. Mm. And, oh, yeah, well, there was this one person. And it's like, it's that generalisation of the skills that you've developed to understanding that that's how they apply to the real world. And it's not... You're not here just to learn a fact and a, and a thing that fits in a box. It's that you're learning about how to, just learning through experience, a lot of these sort of transferable skills that you can then take elsewhere. And it's not being brilliant at them, but it's being good at reflecting on them that's important to the employers that are out there, I think, is that they want to understand that you recognise the importance of some of these things that you've done. And similarly, around sort of research skills, they don't. Most employers have got absolutely no interest in your knowledge of using a statistical and analytical package to analyse some data, but they absolutely uh, recognise and want to know that you understand the value of looking at a situation, working out what possible changes could be made and hypothesizing about what those changes might do mm. and evaluating if you've done some of them how successful they might have been mm. these are these are skills that people want you to know about uh you know nobody wants to be in a situation where they've done something in the workplace and your boss says well did you not realize that that might happen if you did that mm. didn't really think about it yeah, that's not what they want. They want somebody to say, "Well, these are the possibilities of the things that we saw we could do in this situation. We evaluated the likelihood of events happening following that, 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 that. That seemed like the best option. That's the one we went for." It's mm. the sort of thing that you know that they're looking for in the general scheme of things. Is that critical evaluation of uh, possibilities and outputs and outcomes and things like that, mm. and that's strengthened by considering research and research methodologies. Mm. Uh, and in various industries, you need to be able to demonstrate if a particular change you've made has been effective. Yeah. Uh, I, know, I know from working in mental health care services, so there's uh, services that operate on payment by results where you need to demonstrate that your service has been effective in eliciting therapeutic change in your patient population. And without knowing basic kind of research design to illustrate that kind of therapeutic benefit, then you don't know if what you're doing is actually making um, eliciting positive outcomes. Mm, no, absolutely. Um, okay, so just to finish up, so what have been some of the key milestones and achievements that you have observed in the psychology department uh, during your time at Northumbria University? Um, there's been... Uh, quite a few, I think, that are important in certain in certain different ways. So, if, if we think across educationally, the successful development of three professional postgraduate routes: uh, master's programs in occupational psychology, sport and exercise psychology, and health psychology. Um, all successful programs, all been running a number of years, all attract good staff who want to work and research in the areas. Uh, I think that a good postgraduate offer is a mark of a successful department. So those three I'm very pleased about. But going along with those three professional routes, we've got the Masters in Research program, which this year has got 22 students on it, I think, which is a very, very large cohort for a an MRAS, uh, probably too many perhaps to some extent, but 
last year it was only 10. So what, what, what causes such a great change, I'm not entirely sure. But the idea that you're training the researchers of tomorrow, again, a sign of a research intensive organization that you are training the researchers of tomorrow. And that program is very successful for an MRES, very successful over the years. Mm. So that's good. One thing that um, has always fascinated me, and it certainly doesn't go away, uh, is the number of people who want to retrain to enter psychology. And so we have our, both our on-campus and our distance learning versions of the uh, conversion programme. That There are a lot of people who are interested in entering the psychology uh, uh, professions later in life, having done degrees in other subjects. Mm -hmm. But both of those programmes are very, very successful in the number of students that uh, that they uh, that they deliver. So I'm very proud of uh, very proud of those as well. Um, the undergraduate single honours programme we redeveloped the options offer to develop pathways in the programme a few years ago. This is something that I'm particularly. Uh, proud of in the undergraduate delivery because it gives students increased ownership and choice of the direction of their studies whilst on their degree so they can go out with named awards or bracketed awards in clinical psychology health psychology forensic psychology business psychology health psychology mm. all of these based on the options that they choose while they are here as opposed to making choices before they join university because they are interested in forensic psychology and choosing a BSc on as forensic psychology and then changing their mind halfway through and they're stuck with it. The way we've developed it is to give that choice. So that's something that I'm particularly uh, proud of. So that's across the educational piece. They're key sort of things that have happened over the years that brought the department to, uh, to where it is now. Mm. If we think about, um, if we think about research, the, the changing in the staff, uh, base to be more focused on research is clearly something that's important but there are things that have um, further uh, helped develop this so there was the development in the mid-90s of the human cognitive neuroscience unit uh, developed by uh, Andrew Scholey and uh, has developed and grown into what is now the Brain Performance and Nutrition Research Centre. Um, it was the department's first and continues to be its most successful um, research centre, uh, being very, very well funded, largely by industry, um, but uh, very well funded over a period of a number of years. To have somewhere that is world famous for the research that it does, such that industry come to us to ask us to do research in certain areas. It's something that uh, really keeps the research of the department um, in a very high profile income uh, uh, regarded manner and, and so that's something that's good because it goes back a long way and it's still successful now it wasn't a flash in the pan it wasn't a, a one-hit wonder it's been going for nearly 20 years now 25 nearly 30 years now bloody hell <laughs> time flies doesn't yeah. it nearly 30 years now so so there was that then there was the development of the um, of the pact lab psychology and communication technology lab uh, which was really good because it was multidisciplinary, brought together people from psychology who were the leaders, such as Pam Briggs and Lynn Coventry when she was here, uh, developing this research area, but in coordination and collaboration with people from the School of Design and the, from the School of Computer Science. So this, this whole area of a multidisciplinary team very, very successful uh, over the years and uh, gained some uh, significant amounts of uh, uh, European money, Research Council money, and uh, a little bit of uh, industry money as well. But again, stretched the department, broadened its uh, ambition and, and made it apparent to a wider uh, group of academics as well that this uh, department of psychology were doing, mm. uh, were doing good work. 
the development of the Northumbria Centre for Sleep Research, another significant uh, uh, occurrence in the development of the department, her brand new area. We had done nothing in the area of sleep at all until the appointment of Professor uh, Jason Ellis. Actually, I don't think he was a professor at the time. I don't think he joined us as a professor. I think he joined us as a reader. But uh, we hadn't done it. He led on the development of the uh, uh, sleep lab and the uh, sleep research area in the department. And now we have a number of academics working in the area to the extent uh, that realistically we have outgrown the sleep facilities that we have in order for us to grow anymore we would need a larger sleep lab to be able to uh, conduct any more research uh, in the area but again significant uh, development that has uh, uh, raised the profile of the department uh, more recently, we've been involved in the development of Neutron, which again is a cross-disciplinary uh, endeavour that links uh, nutrition and cognition and psychology and various different areas. The idea of this interdisciplinary working again, which is uh, something that is uh, uh, very popular and very important uh, in these days. So those sorts of uh, uh, key sort of research lab uh, developments uh, were important. Increase in the number of PhD students over the years to the stage where we don't just have RDF university funded ones, we have industry funded ones, we have research council funded ones, we also have self funded PhD students. We have a critical mass of researchers at that junior level who are doing some really, really outstanding work. Uh, and that part of the culture cannot be underplayed uh, because you need the young, enthusiastic PhD student endeavours to really keep things pushing forward, to really keep everybody else on their toes in terms of what's coming down the track, what's next, what's going, what's, uh, uh, what's the next thing that we really ought to be focusing on. So that's uh, a really good thing that we've uh, that we've got going for us. So, um, what are the next steps for the psychology department at Northumbria University? Uh, I think that we uh, need some time to try and establish our a greater degree of um, integration of the various different new staff and research areas that we have in the department in order to enable a greater degree of uh, collaborative research between members of the psychology department as well as people beyond the psychology department. We've got some great people in the department. Now we're up to around about 90 staff or whatever. It, it's a fact that some people, some members of the staff just don't know other members of staff because they've never come across them, mm. you know, because of the size of the department. That's, that's a shame, and I think there's some really good collaborative activities that we could get going. That's something I think that we ought to try and uh, deliver. Um, the, the single most important thing for me, and it's, and it has always been the most important thing for me, is that members of the psychology department should be happy in their roles, happy in their work, and feel uh, that they are able to achieve what they want to be able to achieve through their academic careers in the Department of Psychology at Northumbria. Because if we can manage that, everything else manages itself. Mm. If people feel that they are able to do what they want to do to be a success, uh, those things are the things that successful academic departments are made of because those things will be around research, will be around teaching, will be around student supervision. These are the things that people get into academia for. They're the things that people ought to be able to do uh, 
and do well and be recognised for. And if they are, then yeah, the department every, the department will do well. And uh, so that's the way forward. And and that requires everybody to be prepared to uh, pitch in with ideas, thoughts, suggestions about what can be done at any level, at all levels, to improve things when improvement uh, can be made. Mm. Um, and that, for me, is something that's that's really, really important. If somebody's sat on a good idea, don't sit on it, share it. Let's, you know, let's see if we can... Let's see if we can do these things. Let's see if we can make, um, well, not let's see if we can. We can make the world mm -hmm. a better place if we just get on and do it rather than sitting around thinking about it or grumbling about it. Let's do something to make it better. Mm -hmm. Here's something we can do. Let's get on and do it. And yeah. Because you mentioned there, it can be situations where you've got members of staff who haven't met one another. Mm. So, what what do you think is the best way for people to be able to put forward these good ideas to ensure their occupational welfare and that they can thrive in this department? Well, in a, in order to put forward ideas, the best means that I always think of is just talking about these things. And of course, there's many different ways that you can talk about them. Everybody has uh, a line manager that they could just pop along and have a chat to. Um, they would will typically work in research groups that have, uh, have research leads for the different themes. They could uh, talk at research groups or to the research leads. Uh, I am in the not too distant future moving my office down to the first floor because I feel that it's too isolated up here. And another way of moving things forward is when I'm down there because it would be so much easier if you pass in, just stick your head in and have a chat. Uh, just, let's talk about this. The best way to move things forward is just for people to talk about. We can, you know, they can be raised at departmental meetings, uh, and we can talk about them uh, amongst larger groups as we go along and decide what and where we might be going mm. but it's just a question of uh, yeah don't be shy just speak to somebody about it uh dr mark moss it's been absolutely fascinating getting your insights of the psychology department over the years and um, thank you very much for your time you're very very welcome daniel